Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 64, part one. Yes, it's part one. Genuinely, man, if you've just downloaded this and you're not sure if you're going to listen or not, this might be be my favourite ever episode. Like, no jokes. This might be my favourite ever ever episode. We had to split into two parts. I met up with Tom Robinson on a Sunday. And the plan was kind of to discuss his new record. Um, he's had me on his, sh- his show on Six Music. I'm a fan of his, his radio show. I've been a fan of his music in the past as well, but in recent years, it's been I've been mainly about his show, and he's a nice guy. And, man, we had just an amazing conversation. Um, I, sh- I need to mention that... <laughs> at this deep point, I need to say speechdevelopmentrecords.com, support the label, go there and get Scroobius Pip merch. You can get B. Dolan stuff, you can get Sage Francis stuff, A War and Peace, Giacomo Brown, Polar Bear, the whole crew's there. Some stuff designed by Mr. Heggie, all of the family. So check us out. Um, but yeah, the plan was to have a quick chat about his new record. And we ended up talking for around three hours. I think intense, right? <laughs> Thankfully, I, I I I sensed it was going that way, and I put a gap in there. So this first part has gone up at midnight as as ever. I wouldn't I wouldn't let you down on your commute. I know there's you people who download nice and early for your train to work. So I would never let you down. But the bonus is, if your journey to work is more than an hour and a half, I've got you covered. For for the journey home as well or maybe just for tomorrow's journey but at midday at midday so this one was at midnight at midday on Wednesday um part two will be will be dropping with Tom Robinson and yeah hell of a story hell of a story um I'm just gonna let him him get into it um this is Distraction Pieces Podcast episode 64 with Tom Robinson Recording levels. You can hear us both. That sounds all right to me. I'm liking that. Yeah, that's perfect. Well, in that case, we have begun. <laughs> we have indeed. Um, I'm joined today by Tom Robinson. How are you? Well, really well. I'm thrilled to see you again after five years since you first came in on my show. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking that earlier t- uh, uh, today. Obviously, we're here. Um, I mean, we're recording on a, a, a Sunday, which is a treat for me, I feel. I don't know, it just feels that bit more relaxed unless you can get in and out of London and not have to, to stress too much. So it's that bit more, more peaceful, isn't it? I, th- I think. Totally, yeah. And then uh, if I record like five minutes with you at the end of this, yeah. this justifies you as a guest on my show. Exactly, that's perfect. Which means that we have an excuse to record in a BBC studio. Exactly. It kind of all just all just comes together perfectly. Um, I mean, we're here to talk about, or in part to talk about, your new record, your return to music. Um, it's always felt for me as an onlooker that it's been a return that's been twinging inside you f- for a long time. It's kind of, I'm, I'm currently on a, a full year or two off from doing any gigs. And 
I've always noticed that although you'll cut down almost a hundred percent, that there'll always be one or two that that will just tempt you in and 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 tempt you back from the edge. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I kind of wanted to keep faith with the people who had followed me all through the decades I was yeah. active making records, and rather than just cast them off once I started working in radio, we had these castaway shows once yeah. a year where we'd do a free show for everyone. Yeah. Uh, just so that they could all come. So are from. they in in London and in Belgium? Is it <laughs> the only two places where I still have a That's significant wonderful. fan base? But That's it's wonderful. great. <laughs> I love the specifics of like we'll do a London gig and one really far from London. But that's perfect. Belgium is get at all from London. You know, you drive yeah. drive a van onto the ferry and you can get there in a day. Yeah. And also, people can come from Germany or Holland or France if if they want to travel. They yeah. have that option much more easily. I mean, it's a amazing as as brits we laugh at um, americans for, for never leaving the country w- ignoring the fact that america has such vastness and variation yet it wasn't until i started to tour europe that i was like we hardly leave england we might go to, to calais whereas europe you can literally we i remember doing a gig and driving through th- three countries in a day and it's like wow that that's insane that all of that is just there yeah, a downside of that, of course, is all the wars they've had because mm. the Panzers can roll down those same roads, of course, so yeah. much more easily. Yeah, yeah, of course, it's got that accessibility. So, I mean, I, I do. Obviously, we're going to get to the album, but one of the reasons, I, again, I don't know if, if you'll agree, but I feel that um, we have, or I, I instantly felt a big a, a connection after one of my visits on your show um and again as you'll know everyone when you're touring or doing a record you're doing a lot of radio shows and and as a radio host you'll have a lot of guests but we had this one um show and I didn't know that I was going to or not until the last minute that I was going to be asked to do some some spoken word um and you asked me and I did a poem of mine called Magician's Assistant which is about self-harm and suicide and I mean, it, it was a hugely emotional moment for both of us because you then kind of r- revealed your tr- troubles in your youth and your your your. St- so not to get too heavy st- straight away into the chat, but yeah, um, your experiences with with depression, with struggling with your self and your sexuality at the time, I guess. So, so can we talk about that a bit? Gr- growing up in in the sixties and seventies, and, and kind of coming to terms with different emotions and, and, and feelings? Yeah. Um, first off, depression. I mean, yeah. if you have depression, it's kind of like you have an alcohol problem. Yeah. Somebody who has been an alcoholic is never not an alcoholic Yeah, anymore. of course. And somebody who has been a depressive never stops being a depressive. Yeah. What you can say is I'm a depressive in recovery. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, completely. I've, be, I've been on an even keel for 10 years, but you can't say... I've beaten it. Yeah, it's always it's, it's always potentially there. It's it's a fascinating thing because I think through p- p- charities like Calm and things like that, it's becoming a more discussed a, t- a topic. I was, d- I was delighted we're recording this on 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 the twenty seventh um, of September. It's actually going to be going out mid October, nearer the uh, around the time of the release. Um, but I was watching. Soccer AM yesterday on, on Saturday morning TV, a sports show, and Professor Green was on there talking about depression and his dad's suicide. And the hosts, I mean, uh, 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 I, f- I felt Helen Chamberlain nailed it amazingly because she kind of just said, Look, 
if you spend £40 a month on a gym, then you'll be applauded. Whereas if you're spending £40 a month on visiting a psychiatrist, it's kind of, you're looked upon as crazy or, or mental health has that word mental at the beginning of it. And it shouldn't be. Your mental health should be as acceptable to, to work on as your physical health, right? It should be a more open and acceptable thing. You mentioned when we had that conversation you just referenced yeah. uh, that your mum is a Samaritan. Yes, yes, my mum has, uh, has, has worked for the Samaritans for a while. And again, I think they're a fascinating um, service and, and, and resource that's, that's so underused because just it's understanding them more. It's not only talking to someone who you don't know because that's a huge, huge relief, someone who's not connected to you, someone who doesn't know who you are so you can just speak freely. But also, I learned that Samaritans aren't allowed to guide you. So if you were to ring up and say, I'm choosing to take my life tonight, they're not allowed to say, no, don't. They they have to be there for you. Hopefully you'll change your mind, like having someone to talk to. But I think that's also a huge thing that it makes them completely unjudgmental. It's not often if you have any suicidal feelings or any depression, you're in, almost encouraged to be ashamed of it. It shouldn't be talked about. Whereas in that situation, it's so guilt-free. And again, I think the guilt comes from um, our historically Catholic society where, where suicide is a sin against God um, and things like that. And it's bizarre that we're not really that country anymore, yet it's still seen as this taboo subject and something to be ashamed of having those thoughts or feelings which are incredibly common i think that stiff upper lip thing yeah yeah is is bizarre it really is the british way of just um yeah getting on and yeah it's it's wrong but so uh, when did you first start to encounter um those darker uh, uh, thoughts and feelings i guess how was your upbringing was it did you have quite a nice environment or well all of us when we grow up we've got nothing to compare it to so yeah, we, we we think we're living in a perfectly normal family and yeah. uh, it and if you if something isn't chiming yeah you think that's you that's wrong yeah, yeah, rather yeah, than of course. you've got a slightly weird family background yeah. you know and yeah. uh, it it occurred to me only years later after meeting loads of other people and meeting their parents and families and and stuff that that my own family wasn't close knit it wasn't it was a bit kind of cold and remote yeah. and uh, my mother was quite withdrawn mm. and i thought it was me being a bad boy for not loving my mother rather than right. my mum for actually struggling with difficulties of her own that she yeah, yeah she sure. had, you know so uh, it gradually crept up on me i think um the the other thing was back in those days um <clears throat> it's it's always hard for kids who find themselves drawn to someone of the same sex, whatever environment they grow up in, sure. you know, even today, even with all the resources we have, yeah. it's, it's still growing up in a heterosexual environment with heterosexual influences. Yep, it's quite, quite difficult for kids to kind of find their own identity and uh, mark it out for themselves. But I think in the 50s and 60s, when I grew up, it was that much harder because it was illegal. I was going to say it was still until... I mean, sixty-seven. It was illegal to to be to be gay. That's four years in prison. But insane, bizarrely, after they quote unquote legalized it uh, for homosexual acts in private between two men aged twenty-one or over, mm. 
there were more arrests for gay offences in the next 10 years than oh, there had really? been in the previous 10. Because it had been defined, the police could then find all kinds of reasons. Well, you've broken the law as it's defined. Yeah, and here it is. Yeah, two men kissing in public was an act of gross indecency. And that, that's crazy, that, that was it? prosecutable. And people were prosecuted in my time in London in the 70s yeah. for gross indecency for kissing. I mean, that's horrendous, isn't it? I always remember I, I, I was working on um, a project a while back and it's, it's something I'm still, a story I'm still trying to write and I interviewed um, a few gay friends of mine and it was f- fascinating to learn of the difference between the gay scene and gay and the gay culture, I guess. And it, the fact that you kind of think of... I just, I, I don't know, it was like... It, like My friend was saying he, he used to go to gay... Um, a literary markets and literary festivals. I was, in my mind, I was like, why does it have to be gay? Why is that defined? And it was the simple thing. He said, well, I can hold my boyfriend's hand and no one is looking round. Even if you're not being hated upon, if you're generally out, even now, two men holding a hand, and I'll be guilty of it at times. I'll notice. I won't be thinking, oh, that's outrageous, but it will catch my eye because it's a change from the norm. So r- realising that, that those events, which to me, I was like, why should any sexuality be attached to a literature festival? It's like, right, actually, it's just finding places where you can just relax and be yourself. So that even, goes, even that worse then. Goes into sport as well. Yeah. In the, in the late 90s, I went over for Radio 5 Live to report on the... Gay games, they weren't allowed to call it the Gay Olympics, but in, in Amsterdam, from all over the world, yeah. athletes came to compete in all the different events, the swimming, the, the races, and what have you. Uh, and I went out there, even with my background, going, why do you have to have a Gay Olympics? Why yeah. Why has it got to be special? Yeah. Why can't you be like everybody else and just compete in the ordinary Olympics? But once I started talking to the athletes, these were like world-class athletes, but who could not be open. Yeah. in their sport yeah. because they would get ostracised in the changing rooms. There was a football referee from uh, Zimbabwe yeah. who would have been imprisoned under Mugabe of course, if, if of he'd course. been open. So he could referee games over in Europe as part of the gay games. But uh, he said, you've got no idea. And that's crazy. It's, so it? it's not us that's got the problem. It's yeah. them. It's, 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 it's fascinating as well because, the I mean, just the Olympics... Makes me think of this the, the irony of there having to be a separate gay Olympics when um, I think I've discussed this on the podcast before. But I, I, when I was doing some research, I found it fascinating. There's kind of a myth that 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 homosexuality was rife in in, in Greek times in, in in ancient Greece, and the fact is it wasn't. There just wasn't definition. There was there wasn't straight or gay. There was just you. Uh, attracted to what you're attracted to not even that everyone was bi it was just undefined it was just there's dominant and submissive or 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 whatever else or quite literally (laughs) can i obtain pleasure from you (laughs) yes yes i can i'm going to and you know it you know it's it's, it's fascinating that area of it as well that it was a lack of definition rather than an openness even Shakespearean times uh, people say was Shakespeare gay was Shakespeare bisexual that didn't exist then so his sonnets some are to a lady some are to a, a young man who's like playing him along and giving him a hard time but he wouldn't. He would have been puzzled if you'd asked him. You know, yeah. are you bisexual then? Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're right. It's definitions it's, that that we kind of seek in this 20th century, 21st century kind yeah. of way. 19th century bandit, 
20th century banned it for the first half and then kind of labelled it. Yeah. And now maybe in this century we can kind of get away from those labels. That's it. I I had a a, a, a transgender special of the podcast with a a great singer called A a Tall Dark Friend, actually, that I think you'd really enjoy if you're not familiar with. But on that, I I felt foolish putting it forward, but I genuinely think that Miley Cyrus and one or two other people are... Put, taking a step in the direction of this is going to sound bold, but of the great Greek philosophers because they're saying I, I, I read a great article with Miley Cyrus who I've not listened to that much of her music and I'm not that outraged by what she does. I know a lot of people are shocked and appalled, but her interview I thought was amazing because she was saying they were asking about her sexuality and she was like, I do things with consenting adults. And that's as defined as it is. As long as everyone, whoever involved, is happy and consenting and grown up, that, yeah, and grown up, yeah, then then that's my that's as far as I define my sexuality. There's no bias, straight, gay. There's what I desire. And just reading that after researching ancient Greece, which is seen as the great breakthrough times of philosophy and thought, and it's like people, I look at Miley Cyrus and damn her and it's like she's speaking the most close to some of the greatest breakthroughs in society it's it's bizarre it is bizarre and the i think this has been a recurrent theme through your podcast is this seeking to box people yeah that constantly people struggle against the fact you have a hit early on in one particular genre yeah. and people ask you about that 20 years later yeah. you know yeah. you, you're still boxing that people are still asking David Bowie about going around in a red wig with yeah. the stockings on there's so much need to define and and, 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 and categorise it's, it's a bizarre thing I, I had a, a message last night on Instagram actually it's just come to mind because it amused me someone suggested I do um, a mental health special of the podcast and I had to kind of say 90% of the episodes end up being <laughs> mental. You know, in general, it's a subject that comes up a lot because, I don't know, I guess we've had that quite early on with people like Eddie Temple Morris and Gail Porter being so open that people feel comfortable to discuss that. So, yeah, I thought that was a great suggestion. I was like, it's not really any need. That's, that's essentially it comes up. It's the same as I don't particularly... I, I've always said I don't want any politicians on now that's partly because i don't support the current political uh, st- structures in this country but p- politics and, s- and social commentary comes up constantly as well so i'm happy to discuss it i just wouldn't want to specifically go here's a politician so yeah. well i guess you'd be afraid that they would be kind trying to make party political points all the time I, as well again exactly that and it's that thing that despite how overwhelming this is all going I'm, th- these aren't I'm, I'm not a journalist. These are conversations that are documented. And if I was to sit down with J- Jeremy Corbyn, a lot of people suggesting, it, it would really be unfair to not sit down with, you know, Nick Clegg, David Cameron, uh, a UKIP representative, or, or whoever else, to have that 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 fairness and variation. Quite frankly, I don't want to be in the same room as any of them people. So it's that I'm, I, I don't have to be tied to journalistic honours and rules here. I could just say I'm just not going to talk to any of you. So just I'll leave that to the the BBC and journalists that have a responsibility to to bring that on. Must be refreshing though to be able to just pick and choose the areas that you want to cover to be able to say fuck on air. You know, I mean, it's, 
just it's so refreshing it really is and i th- i think it's the it's 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 the podcast re- revolution that's growing and growing i i was still doing my xfm show the beatdown when i went on joe rogan's podcast in america and his is one of the biggest in the world just amazing always 3 hour long just in depth conversations that could go from um a f- a f- philosophies of, of 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 quantum physics or or looking as far externally into space as internally into the human and then they'll be talking about f- fart jokes and weed and dicks and it's you know it's a beautiful variation but after that I, he, he he kind of was saying to me exactly that is like you don't have to have a boss anymore in this thing and and um like i mean we'll get around to six music which i think is is an amazing thing and it's was essential the the campaign a while back to save six music i think in many ways it was the true birth of six music and the true uh, uh, launch of six music but equally anything that is part of a big company there has to be a level of what is acceptable before it's happened if you know what i mean whereas the podcast or whatever let's put it out there and then see if we need to ad- address anything, rather than you know pre pre predetermining what's what's right and what's wrong, that's what prejudice literally yeah. means prejudging. Yeah. yeah, exactly that. Well, anyway, listen. I mean, we keep obviously as as you've heard from the podcast, we dart about an awful lot. But can we go back again? So you're you're growing up and starting to feel um, you have an attraction to to people of the same sex, but you're growing up somewhere where that's not only frowned upon or or confusing or unexplained, it's illegal, you know? So how how do you start to get through that in your head? Well, for starters, there wasn't any gay role models. So, of of course, there had been Noel Coward, who everybody in the London set or the literary circles, they all knew he was gay. They got the gay references in his plays or his uh, comic songs and what have you. But growing up as a teenager in rural Essex, I had no idea uh, that that was even out there. And they couldn't be open about it because of the threat of legal action. So those of us who were going to do to grow up and have a happy life had no way of knowing that was in store for us. Yeah. That that was even a possibility, that you could be gay, or let's broaden it out, that you could be attracted to somebody of the same sex as yourself yeah. and still have a perfectly happy life yeah. and fulfilled and that you were not alone. That was the great thing that David Bowie said in 1972, 1973, when he did that whole kind of Ziggy coming out yeah. thing, was... He, when he's saying you're not alone, yeah, that resonated in a million bedsits across the country. Yeah, yeah, completely. And I mean, I need to just drive that home a little bit more because it's so hard to comprehend in today in today's society a time where you wouldn't have even particularly known what these feelings were because it was so not out there and not discussed. It's like, oh, but it what? was in a negative way. I mean, you, yeah, t- of course. you heard about queers. Yeah. Your parents warned you about queers. Yeah, Other kids at schools made jokes about queers. And if anybody, any boy showed some level of affection to another boy in a friendly way yeah. at school, it was, oh, homos. Yeah. It yeah. was like, yeah, it and you used to actually join in that to try and draw the heat off yourself. Yeah, I mean, that's, it was it's, horrendous. It's, it's this kind the classic, of self hate. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's the cl- the classic thing there. The, the self hate or the over exaggeration of that because of your own yeah 
wanting to cover up or even even not wanting to accept it. So we knew what it was and we knew it was bad. Yeah. So we, we were kind of warned about homosexuals before we, we even knew we were one. Yeah. You know, so it was... Uh, that's why, um, in the end, I think, just trying to take my life seemed the simplest way yeah. to uh, way out of it. That and what said, age were you when you were? I was um, just sixteen. Yeah, just turned right, sixteen. Yeah. So I was in the sixth form, just joined the sixth form, and uh, I just couldn't see any way forward. I yeah. would rather have died, uh, as I said at the time, than um, than anyone find out yeah. that I was in love with this other boy at school. I was just obsessively, passionately, and massively in love. Never told him. Yeah. He had no idea. But I just had this worshipping obsession from afar. Again, I mean, that's something, again, when people don't talk to their gay friends or anything like that about these more taboo things, that realisation that it's not necessarily a waking up and going, I like boys. It's a waking up and going, I'm in love with I'm that love. boy. That specific, you know, it's not that I'm... Oh, this is now an exciting thing, and I'm. It's like I'm in love with this person who happens to be the, to wrong be sex. the same sex. Yeah, yeah, to be the the, the 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 wrong sex for what I've been brought up to to believe I should be. But of course, you know, years later that happened to me a second time. Fell in love with somebody of the wrong sex, who turned out to be female. Yes, you know. Yes, <laughs> so, uh, that kind of having uh, literally made a song and dance about being gay uh, in my twenties. Yeah, in my thirties. I meet someone at a gay switchboard benefit who turns out to be the great love of my life, the person yeah. I want to spend the rest of my life with, who is, again, the wrong sex. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, according to the boxes that were being put in, yeah. you know, you can't still be a proper gay person and be in love with somebody of the Completely opposite sex. Completely, again, from, from my interview with, uh, with my friend, who I'm actually going to have to have on the podcast. He's an amazing author, um, poet everything he's, he's a great guy moose rock wonga um and one of the things he, he was saying that it was for him despite how hard it was to come out it was harder to go back in as such <laughs> to, to, to tell his gay friends in the gay community that or to introduce them to a girl that he met on a night out and 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 liked and and, and started a relationship with so so how was that particularly again we'll we're jumping through the lineage a bit and we'll go back to it but you had very much been a, a campaigner and a, a public figure I mean you spoke of not having any gay role models when you were growing up you went out there and became one you know so well it was what David Bowie did for me basically um, all through the 60s I was a mad passionate music fan yeah you know buying records listening to records learning records singing being in bands all the rest of it and then completely divorced from that it was my emotional life where yeah. I was fixated on and attached to other boys yeah um and none of the music I heard had anything to do with the emotions I was feeling. Yeah. It was always, almost but not quite. Yeah. So when John Lennon sang, hey, you've got to hide your love away, I was going, yes, I know all about that. Yeah. And then he'd go, if she's gone, I can't go on. Yeah. And he'd go, oh. I don't yeah. know it. I That's thought not I got a, it. Yeah. You know, it's a song called You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. I later made a radio program based on that as a theme. Yeah. But that was the thing. It was almost what you felt but the pronouns were wrong. So nothing was documenting our lives. And it wasn't until David Bowie 
came along in 1972 with Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust, all those songs, yeah. and said openly in the Melody Maker, I'm bisexual, actually. Yeah. And it kind of was like un- taking, opening this valve for a whole generation yeah. who had had no expression. And we followed Bowie like crazy. Yeah. You know, We bought every record, we read his every pronouncement because he was telling our story for the first time ever. You listen to a great record. This is the key thing. Not just some shit record that some yeah. gay person happened to have made. It was a brilliant, top-class, yeah. world-beating record. And it was about us. And, and that's the... the, the the key there is his sexuality was the footnote rather than 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 the leading thing there and and again there's 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 a lot of stuff particularly in the in the gay scene in in the late 70s and 80s where there were a lot of bands that the key part was that they were gay the rest was yeah there's some all right songs but the main part was we're gay and we're proud and open and 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 that was the exciting thing about uh, david about bowie was that that yeah he happens to be gay, but look at this amazing, iconic music that's, that's, the that's there. If, if his music had been shit, nobody would have given a toss what yeah. his sexuality was. So there we there we had it. And you listen to a song like the Bewley Brothers, uh, about this mysterious story about this kind of bromance going on in the dark shadows of the London uh, um, underground scene. Mysterious images. Who knew what it was actually about? Turned out to actually be about his own brother Terry. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. it was something that we could all project onto. And I swore to myself, if I could ever do for somebody else, if I ever got in a position with my own music, um, which I had ambitions for but yeah, no hope of, of doing course. at the time, if I ever got to the position with my own music where I could do for someone else what Bowie had done for me, yeah. then I'd do my best. And I think it, it, it must have been a catalyst for so many people because, um, again, we're, just, we're, we're darting about the, the, the lineage of, 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 of gay music now, of, of, of the gay scene. But I remember kind of after Bowie, there was that comfort and there was a lot of openness um, and flamboyance in homosexuality. But then... Um, I don't know if you'll if you'll agree with this. I mean, you, you, you'd already started to get into the scene as as well by this point. But um, a Bronsky beat with Small Town Boy was one of the first that I remember just that, that talked of no, you know, it, it should be a proud thing. But if you're from a small town, like like we're not all in London, we're not all in London where you can go, a Frankie goes to Hollywood or whatever and be so yes, look at me. There's a lot of us who this realization is pretty much the nail in their coffin in, in their hometown or the, they have to run away and have to leave and have to, to leave under the cover of night and and a song like that becoming so big felt equally hugely important because heterosexual love songs aren't all in that one tone they're happy they're sad they're they're bombastic they're romantic they're heartbroken there's such variation whereas it felt homosexual love songs at that time were very much we can do what we want. Isn't sex great? Isn't openness great? And there wasn't that variation. So, yeah, things like that seemed exciting in that moment. That became a kind of a bit of a quiet secret mission of mine over the... Um, I carried on making albums through to 1996. Yeah. And all the way through there, from Glad to Be Gay onwards, yeah. I tried to make sure every song lyric... Um, if it was a love song or about a, a, a storytelling song or whatever, yeah. that the characters were queer, yeah. but it wasn't overt. Yeah. So that you could um, 
There, there was a song called The Wedding, uh, which had the chorus, it isn't the bride that I want to kiss, it isn't your friendship I'm going to miss. Yeah. And if you're not tuned into that, you... You're yeah. not going to, yeah. you're not going to pick up on it. But I wanted it to carry on through there, so that if you did follow the music I was making, yeah. and you were emotionally tuned in on that level, then there'd be something extra there for you, for the me, yeah. that was out there in the audience. Again, it's the beauty that it, it's just changing the default. Yeah. You know, not making a big deal of it, but just saying the default doesn't have to be boy meets girl. Exactly. Let's make the default. Boy meets boy or girl meets girl, in fact, you know, either way. And then, then Jimmy Somerville, you just yeah. mentioned, I mean, bless him, there's more to love than boy meets girl. What yeah, a great song! Yeah, 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 definitely. So, let's, I mean, let's talk about your, your path into music then. How, um, you, uh, as said, at an early age, you had these dark thoughts and these, these troubles, and uh, and you attempted suicide. What pulled you back from the brink, and then? From there on, what made you gave you that direction of going right? No, a life is worth living, and not only is it worth living, I'm going to have an impact on others in this manner. An incredible uh, chance was offered to me. Um, it doesn't exist today. It didn't exist for most people then, but this opening occurred in that dark despair. I was seeing psychiatrists, I was being sent to mental hospital, I was really looking for a way to find another chance to yeah. top myself, when I was offered an interview at a place called Finchden Manor, F-I-N-C-H-D-E-N, um, and my dad picked me up from boarding school and drove me down to this place, and we drove down to the heart of Kent, right down to the wheel mm. near Rye, and turned into this courtyard... Uh, out on the outskirts of a village where there was this Jacobean manor house, half ruined. You know, all the windows had been smashed and broken, then re-mended and then smashed and then mended again. You know, loads of times over 40 years. And um, there was a row of ragged faces looking out of the window as we pulled up in the courtyard. And uh, we got out and went to the front door and were ushered into this kind of calm, oak-panelled place. And then a door opened and we were ushered in. And this little stooping man um, with uh, black, uh, sort of black uh, plastic glasses, um, which were quite dirty in a stooping manner, peered over them and came towards us in an old tweed jacket. And he took my hand in both of his and peered into my eyes. And he held on to my hand for too long. Right. You know, he didn't let go. And so he made sure I was engaged. And then he looked me in the eye and he went, you're very lonely, aren't you? Wow. You know, and all these psychiatrists have been going... You know, this is an inkbot test. Tell yeah. us what you see in here. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, you're going to take these pills this time. This man just looked straight over my soul. He went, you're very lonely, aren't yeah. you? And I could have cried on the spot because Amazing. that was the heart yeah. of what was wrong. Yeah. That it's not you're homosexual or you're depressed or... It's lonely as fuck. Yeah, yeah. And there I was. And he talked to me for about uh, an hour, just me and him in, in his study... Um, and just took this burden off my shoulders completely. Just somebody who reached in, understood, communicated, 
And he was born in Victorian times. I mean, yeah. he was already gone 70. He was 75 or wow. something at that time. Uh, but he'd been running that place for 40 years. And it was a therapeutic community for disturbed adolescents, but run on the most unconventional lines imaginable. Yeah. It wasn't, like, regulated. It wasn't government-sponsored. It was basically his private house in which our status was as guests staying with him and his wife. Wow. So, yeah. technically, that was it, although he had a staff of 10. Yeah. And in this old manor house and its outbuildings and its grounds, uh, which had a football field and ponds, vegetable gardens, rose gardens, um, outbuildings, stables, everything. There were about 45 youths aged between about 14 and 25. Yeah. Um, and they were that old because you were never sent away because you'd reached a statutory age if you weren't ready to leave. Right. So yeah, there was about 45 inhabitants, there was about 10 staff, there were eight dogs, about 30 cats, and uh, his one hot little section of the house, beautifully kept, absolutely civilised. The rest of it was just like mayhem. Yeah, the smell was undescribable. The, food, <laughs> the boys did all the chores, uh, did the cooking, cleaned the lavatories, all the rest of it. We just took it in turns on a, on a chores list. And... Um, I was shown around after after I'd seen him, and he went and talked to my dad instead. Yeah. And in my dad's diary, he noted down that day, he said, after one hour with George Lywood, the boy was transformed. Yeah. And I went around. It was terrifying because yeah. these were like boys who'd come from the most troubled Backgrounds, you know, some from Borstal, yeah. some from mental hospital, some just like me from school. Yeah. Um, but all with quite deeply troubled pasts. Yeah. Um, and yet this kind of electric, alive atmosphere. Yeah. So being sh shown into a mealtime, we're sitting at trestle tables, people got ragged jeans. In those days, long hair down to your nipples was like unheard of. Yeah, yeah. And all shouting and sitting and then boys coming in and serving the food and others going, seconds! Yeah. And all the food cooked by them and it couldn't have been more different from a Quaker boarding school yeah. where i just come from. Yeah, of and at the end of the day, after I'd seen this alarming but vigorous environment, I went back to Mr. Lywood and he said to me, right, well, we're full up. And we've got a long waiting list. Haven't got any room. Can't take you. Anyway, we don't normally take boys as sick as you. And then he just turned to me and looked me in the eye and said, do you want to come? And I went, yes! Amazing. Because that... Wow. He was seeing if I was ready to take the risk yeah. of jumping rather than wanting to set conditions or, yeah. uh, or linger or, or anything. Yeah. If I was capable of making that leap, he would offer me that lifeline. And I just... I leapt... Yeah. And that's the best decision I made in my life. I chose life yeah. rather than slow death back at home. I mean, it's a beautiful th th thing. And it's um, so many things came to mind, as, as you were saying, all of that. But nothing that was w worthy of interrupting such an amazing, exciting story there. But the fact that at that time so much of mental health as it is now but more so was so misunderstood so you would have been sent to so many different people who didn't know what they were doing or didn't know how to diagnose these things and it is such a personal and individual thing and then I mean adding to that the the beauty of 
the sudden accessibility to a community of of, of, of like-minded people in a way which love or hate the internet and social media for all its its, its, its negativity it has opened up that accessibility to find other people so the almost um inevitable loneliness at some point of teenage life y- you can find other people that are feeling the same that have been through the same that have those emotions so but at that time that wouldn't have been the case yeah. I, I said to suddenly be taken in such an odd manner to this weird place and go here's loads of people yeah. who feel like that and and the final th- thought that came to mind was i think one of the 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 one of the toughest things of depression um, can be a feeling of not having the right to be depressed, to be unhappy, to be miserable. As you were saying, there were so many people there who had come from such worse, such tougher backgrounds and upbringings. It it can at point feel well. It, I, yeah, I've not got a right to be struggling or to be unhappy because there's so many people in worse situations. There are. But that doesn't make your own struggles wrong or, or, or any any less important because you know it's still it's still a valid place to be and, and feeling to have I guess totally and that was the, the nature of the therapy was it was effectively group therapy yeah you lived in that community we didn't on the whole go home much or visit outside much it was yeah. fairly closed community. Um, I asked, I asked, I asked, How was that to go from the upbringing you'd had, and as you said, and a lack of awareness of anything else, you know, of anything other than that being the norm, to suddenly go, "Wow, this is so different from the norm," but it's real and exists. And it was extraordinary, and, and the boys there being of such wide range of ages, um, he did. He, one or two girls came in the course of the time there, yeah. um, who were sent for help, but on the whole, he didn't make it co-educational because you can imagine what that would have done to the emotional mix yeah sure i mean most of us had the emotions of a two-year-old anyway but then if you started adding sex in that in a big way and um it it, it would have created mayhem so the idea was it give us an environment from which in which we could go back and be children again yeah Uh, among our peers you measure yourself against your fellows. You find out who you are relative to them. And the great thing was nobody ever referenced who we had been in the past. Yeah. Nobody had the oh, smallest wow. curiosity about what somebody else had done when they were younger. And That's I've beautiful. only found out years later, meeting them again via reunions and the internet, oh, wow. found out what people's backgrounds actually were and how horrendous they were. Yeah. Um, but at the time, it was, who are you in the now? That's beautiful, yeah. That's Each day you lived it for that day. Yeah. And you were taken for who you were that day. Yeah. So that you had to... If you decided, I'm going to throw a strop, I'm not going to do my washing up, nobody ate. Yeah, yeah, So yeah, yeah. that peer pressure on you yeah. to do your washing up I l- was, was I, amazing. I love I mean, that's that. The that, best constant, that constant having to be the best you in this moment rather than, well... And again, it's, it's, it's a, th- a thing that all of us have fall upon in society at points of, oh, I did a really good deed a month ago. You know, I can I can, can put my, my feet out and keep harking back to that. No, but I did. You remember remember when I did that? It's, uh, it doesn't matter. It's not now. It doesn't mean now. Yeah. And, uh, I love that. And the other thing about that community aspect is it's, we're all connected. Yeah. You know, we're all part of one another. And if I do this, it's not... In isolation, it affects 
you, yeah. you, you, and you. So it. That must it have been was an a amazing, sharp growing up, amazing growing up. Yeah. A, a very sharp kind of right now. You're again, you're 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 a grown up. You're you're learning how it is to be part of society and part of a community rather than just you being looked after by your parents or whatever yeah. else. You know, it wasn't peace and love. It wasn't like nicey nicey. You know, people mistake what a community is. Yeah, people think community means everybody thinking the same, doing the same, being nice to each other and belonging we're all wearing the same badge. Yeah. That's not a community, that's a cult. Yeah. Yeah. A community yeah. is the people you happen to go to school with, the people who happen to live in the same road yeah. as you, the people you happen to go on holiday with. Yeah. It's just a a random selection of yeah. individuals randomly made up who are there in that moment who you have to rub along with. And, and th- that's exactly it. They're having to, uh, to rub along with essentially a, a group of people that you don't have the option at that point of walking away from. It's like, no, no, it's, it's not as simple as that. If we don't agree, that's fine to not agree, but, 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 but you can't just, just, just take your ball and go home. You've got to, you've got to figure out how you're going to coexist with these people you don't agree with or have some kind of conflict with in any way, you know. And that was amazingly therapeutic. Yeah. But then on top of that, there were the interventions by the expert inf- interventions of Mr. Lywood himself. Right. Um, so he would intervene at completely unexpected moments and you could never guarantee what was going to happen so if a boy ran away or uh, went out at night when you weren't supposed to the staff would come and fetch them but you might just be offered a cup of cocoa or they might make you bacon and eggs in the kitchen rather than punishing you there weren't any punishments anyway but um if just just sounds like such an amazing character. This feels like a film already. This feels like this this, this needs to be a <laughs> well, book or story. Or well, some he could sort. be stern. He could be harsh. Yeah, as he could be harsh as fuck. I mean, he he would just as easily you'd be brought back from having uh, run away, and he'd be there waiting for you in the staff room. Say, pack your bags and leave. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes that was the final intervention that actually made somebody put somebody into a state of readiness to leave. Yeah, or. Sometimes yeah, sure. it was a bluff and he let them stay. Yeah. But at the same time, there could be those kind of shocks. So he used to occasionally turn up at, at breakfast time and um, we would kind of stumble into the, into the dining room to have our morning cup of tea. And um, there was this fiction that you were, you were all supposed to be there from nine o'clock. You know, why are you late into breakfast? Yeah. So t- as he was sitting there, some boys would stumble in, nothing would happen. Some boys would stumble, stumble in and he'd say, give that boy bacon and eggs. And the other boy would stumble in and say, get back to bed. <laughs> Don't get out till I tell you to. <laughs> it was, and he, he had this terrifying charisma. I mean, not yeah. terrifying. He could be terrifying yeah. if he wanted to be, even to grown men, yeah. visitors or whatever. If some yeah, yeah. visiting psychologist or something pissed him off, yeah. he would like make them into a little kid. Yeah. He would just reduce them with a tongue lashing. Yeah. Um, so he had an immense personal charisma. So that I think given the really disparate and quite rough backgrounds yeah. of a lot of us, it was part of that disarming process that he wasn't afraid of any yeah. of us or yeah. anything. And he saw the little boy, the terrified little boy in the heart of that great yeah. hunking brute. Um, another day, he'd just come in and say, we're having breakfast in the courtyard. 
And yeah. it was a sunny day. Why are you all sitting in here? Come and we had to take all the breakfast things out and we ate breakfast in the courtyard. Wow. Um, and he taught us a song in German. Right, and, amazing. You know, you're going, what? Because he had this immense classical uh, education and background and yeah. stuff. And he made us all sing a song in German phonetically and we only found out years later what it meant. Right. He taught us this song that went, Der Mai ist gekommen, die Bäume schlagen aus, da bleibet Verlust hat mit Sorgen zu Haus. And of course it piques your curiosity, so you go and find out what it means. And it actually meant, May has come, the trees are all in bloom, let he who wants to stay indoors with his sorrow. Amazing. And Amazing. So and it was like, yeah. come out, live. Don't, don't shrink away in your little and, shell. And I, I, I love the awareness that there was no real requirement for you to understand the words to get the benefit from the song, if you know what I mean. I, I feel that yeah, yeah. The, the act of singing it and the act of the, the melody and everything would have enacted exactly what the song's about. And then you, years later you go, all right, that's, that's what we were doing. We were getting out... We were taking it all in. It's surprising. It was shocking. And in terms of what went on all day, uh, you know, people, uh, there was one guy who built mobiles with, um, out of metal with soldering irons and welding guns yeah. and stuff. Uh, there were several who were painters. There was a pottery where they dug up the clay locally, weathered it, had a homemade uh, throwing wheel, wow. a, a wood-fired kiln. And these team of guys had built the pottery in generations past and then boys were throwing pots, learning to glaze them, Amazing. making their own glazes and stuff. Uh, we we had a, a band, you know, that uh, got yeah. together and learnt, learnt how to sing and what have you. Uh, one or two studied for A-levels doing one-to-one -one tuition with an older member of staff. Right. Um, there were boys who were obsessed with bicycles and were kind of mending and fixing bicycles, uh, some gardening, um, there were several really good kind of concert-grade pianists, so three grand, grand pianos wow. scattered around the place. Um, and some boys just vegetated. You, yeah. know, you were free to do those things to, at your pace. Surrounded by so many options, kind of, yeah, it's great that that's... And then there were there. communal activities like uh, treasure hunts. Every Easter there was a treasure hunt. There'd be a command performance. Mr. Lowe would come in and say, right, tonight, command performance. And we, we had to put together a show Amazing. to play for him and his family and the staff and uh, visitors from around the place. We had plays, we had dances, girls from the local area were invited in. But we spent a month preparing the hall. Each dance had a theme. So it would be wow. like the inside of a ship or a Dickensian yeah. st street. And money was available for the timber and the papier-mâché materials and stuff to decorate the hall. We spent a month decorating the hall for one dance. Yeah. The girls came in, we did these dance both formal dancing and regular kind of yeah. dancing, as you and I would know. Yeah. And then, next day, all torn down, gone, That's over. amazing. So, as, as a, an awakening to life, yeah. you know, from where I had been to in, an introduction to being alive, 
yeah. that nothing could nothing could have. So bettered. how long were you? I was there nearly the, six years. Six years, amazing. That, and again, I just as you've you've already made it very clear, a completely a rebirth of 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 of, of a six years. Um, at what point did you start to 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 find that that music was something that you wanted to be involved in and 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 and, and perform and produce rather than just a listen to or absorb i'd been in school bands at, at the boarding school yeah um we you know we weren't that great but we, we we made a start and of course i think as a new boy arriving at finchton manor wanting to impress i wanted to show i could play guitar and yeah and, and of course all the older boys were, oh, yeah here comes another one yeah 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 <laughs> and so all my attempts to show off were all kind of yeah. just witheringly crushed a, but a, a classical pianists are rarely impressed by a few bar chords are they <laughs> it's so true <laughs> but then an old boy from the place yeah was alexis corner right and Alexis Corner turned up one day to visit Mr. Lywood with his family and agreed to do a concert in Mr. Lywood's study. Wow. And we all packed in around the edges, like squatting down on the floor, packed up, um, backs up against the walls. This room was absolutely packed and heaving. And this 42-year-old man with grizzled hair and a floral shirt, um, looking like some kind of rock and roll gypsy, stepped into the middle of the room with a guitar case, took out a guitar, strapped it on and opened his mouth and sang. And it was magic. Yeah. I'd never seen that. Yeah. You see, I'd always thought singing was something that you did that the Beatles did on a stage with microphones and an audience and proper amplifiers mm-hmm. and it was a performance I'd never the idea that a performance was just a person in a room sharing something with the rest of the room yeah. and that you could have the authority to just stand there open your mouth and have something interesting to say it's, yeah and, it's, and it's having that moment of realization of right this is just this is just oh. something that a human does this isn't this isn't David Bowie this, no. this is just something that it's it's something that someone can do. It's not a... a you don't have to be professional thing. at it, but yeah. it's something you can do. Yeah. And it's something that people have done for centuries. Yeah. People have got up and performed. And yeah. that's that's what it is. And I went, I want to be one of those. Yeah. Whatever that is, I want to be that. And, of course, Alexis was a broadcaster as well. So he yeah. had his own shows on Radio 1, um, as well as being the mentor of the British blues scene. So he had given the first breaks to the members of the Rolling Stones. Mick Jagger sang in his band. Charlie Watts played drums for him. Uh, Manfred Mann, Cream, uh, uh, Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker both played in Alexis's band, uh, right through to Free and years later TRB. You know, we were all mentored by Alexis. So he was an amazingly influential musician who doesn't really get the recognition he deserves. Yeah. Uh, and he was an influential broadcaster, was the kind of precursor of the whole Bob Harris... Right. Uh, kind of Charlie Gillett... Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, Specialist yeah, yeah, world course, music yeah. uh, radio yeah. broadcaster. So... Um, That's amazing. Yeah. He, he, Alexis, who tragically died in the early 80s, um, was the best best friend to me um, and influence and mentor and to give you an idea our little band down at Finchton we were just using cobbled together equipment we were singing into a plastic tape recorder mic uh, you know with a jack plug soldered onto it plugged into the guitar amp and we said to Alexis uh, do you think you could help us get a, a proper microphone in London 
And he went, how much have you got, boys? And I said, well, five pounds. He said, well, give me that and I'll see what I can do. <laughs> and he, he gave him our fiver. And in the post the next week, a brand new Sure Unidine 3 arrives in a box. You know, God knows how much it had cost yeah. him, but he, he sent it down to us. And suddenly our school band, you know, community band, uh, was transformed because yeah. you've got a decent mic you can hear the vocals at last. Yeah. It rejects feedback. It doesn't, you know, yeah. you can crank it up and you can hear the vocals over the drums. Yeah. So suddenly, yeah, this was the way forward. And uh, we never looked back. Amazing. So so how quickly did, did you start to find a, a success? I guess, what was the, the or, or what was the big break or big breakthrough moment for you? In... 73, I left Finchton um, and moved to London rather than going back home to where my parents lived, by then living on Teesside. And um, moved to a bedsit in Clapham and together with a best friend from Finchton and a friend from Teesside, we formed a band called Cafe Society. We didn't have any money, we didn't have any kind of contacts, we didn't have any equipment, we didn't know how the three of us in our three bedsits were going yeah. to make a band. So we just took the two acoustic guitars I we I love owned. how early on it becomes, we've got a name. Yes. That, that's the main thing we've got, we've got a name. We've not really got any means of doing anything, but we've got, we've bloody got a name. And a mission. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, and some songs. Yeah. So we, my, my master plan was, you know, the other two were the real songwriters of the band and much better singers than me. And so my job was to be like the backing vocalist and catalyst to help make it happen. Yeah. So I just got us to arrange these songs for three-part vocal harmonies, two guitars, and we'd go around the folk clubs playing floor spots around yeah. London, yeah, sort yeah. of four, three or four nights a week, yeah. um, and leaving our card with the, the managers for when somebody cancelled. Eventually somebody cancelled at the Battersea Folk Club. We got a call at four that afternoon, got down there with the guitars, played a full set, and got such great feedback off that we were able to then get a residency at the Troubadour Club and wow. headline shows at other folk clubs. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing how... It always confuses me or stuns me when bands ask what they can do to break through or whatever else or ask for advice on that. Because, again, my experience was similar to that in that all you can do is put the hours in. I, I would do... I lived in Essex, but I'd come up and I would do f- three to five open mics a week. And the fact is, quite quickly, even though you're not a professional, people will assume you're professional because someone at one spoken word night... I will have heard of Scroobius Pip. And it's like, all like all you're doing is open spots that anyone can do, but because they've started to all diff- hear of you, it sounds like you're a professional. And then you get your first booked gig and it feels as if you're some big deal or establishing. It's like, no, I've just I literally turned up. That's all I, you know, you did what you do as well. But literally the, the, the graft part was turning up and doing a gig that is open to absolutely anyone. Anyone can turn up and do that gig. But so many are waiting for that. So how do I get that big gig? It's like, we don't get it by tweeting me asking. You get it by being out there and being, yeah, Yeah. putting yourself in that position, I guess. You start from where you are. Yeah. It's the key thing. Yeah. Don't wait for something else to happen or for somebody else to wave a magic wand. 
start where exactly you are. Exactly, what can you do now? Yeah. Well, go and do that then. Yeah. And then hopefully soon there'll be something else that you can do, and then you can go and do that, and then that, that climbs and climbs, right? Because we, we both know that when you see a situation from the outside, you think, oh, that doesn't look very promising. Once you put yourself in the situation, the situation itself has changed by virtue of you being in it. Yeah, completely. So it isn't what you think. So sometimes A hundred percent. So many, I mean, open mics in themselves... They can seem redundant, but it's because you're not in the open mic. As soon as, you, as you're in it, you realise as soon as you do open mics, 90% of the people are only waiting to get their chance to do their song. They don't give a shit about you. But that's why that injecting yourself into it, it suddenly becomes something. Because, like, oh, I'm performing now. I'm part of it. It suddenly has some worth. So, yeah, that's... That's that's kind of how they work. Everyone's there kind of <laughs> f- 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 for their own means in that way. But there's still going to be a guy who, r- who runs it, who runs some other nights. There's still going to be some people from other nights there who run up and so on and so forth, you know. so. Well, one night at our residency down at the Troubadour, Alexis agreed to come and be a special guest. So he wow. came down to perform for us. And that night, Ray Davies of the Kinks came right, down wow. to check us out. Yeah. And he sees Alexis as our special guest being pally with us and thinks, oh, we'll take them seriously then, yeah. and um, invites us for a, a screen test, so to speak, at his studio up at Conk Studios, wow. which he'd just built, and uh, eventually signed us to his label, Conk Records, wow. and produced our first album. Amazing. So, um, yeah. so how was that, to suddenly have that, 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 that seal of approval or uh, that stamp? Well, we thought we'd made it, you see. <laughs> we, th- we thought, it, re- record deal... It's such an illusion, isn't it? It's such record, an illusion. Record deals were so few and far between. That yeah. we, you think as soon as you're signed to a record deal and you're on a retainer, you are pop stars. Yeah. You've made it. I mean, as I say it all the time, but it was such a huge realisation that the releasing of an album is the first stage of an album's life. It's like I always thought you get to that point where you've recorded an album, you're finished. It's like, no, you then get to that for so and the songs change so much and it all comes into its own it's like you see that as such a, a, a definitive end point of of that that journey it's like no that's it's the barely the middle barely the middle yeah absolutely so and in the event you know radio one didn't give it one play no because in those days the, of course there was no internet but i mean unless you got played on radio one yeah, then nobody would power. ever, ever hear your record. Yeah, outside but, of your your, your uh, residency uh, that you were doing, regardless. Other than your, yeah. other than your family and the people who were already coming to your gigs. Mm. So, um, it it was a non-starter, really. Uh, yeah. The gatekeepers didn't let us through. Right. Um, but also, you know, the record wasn't that great. Right. Because we had surrendered responsibility for our own sound, for what we did to the experts. Yeah. We had signed, we'd got over the, the sill of the door, we'd been let in and allowed to be recording artists, validated, given our retainer. So we thought, okay, we'll let them get on with it and we'll just sit around here and write some more songs. Yeah. Whereas actually, in my experience, if you take personal responsibility for how your records are sounding and Completely. how they're going to be released, how they're going to be promoted, what you're doing, it probably wasn't open to us as an option where we were the, a rich man's plaything back yeah. then. Yeah, but sure. you saw the results of not being it's, involved it's, and not having a say. For me, it's, it's finding the, the balance. It's realising that these people um, have years of experience in releasing records, in marketing records. So there's a lot that you have to bow down to their knowledge, but they've come to you 
to put your record out. So there's also a lot that you have to do and have that impact. It's like when they saw you as this big prospect, that had no input in your career up till then. So whatever you'd been doing to get to that point, you shouldn't then just throw away and go, oh, it's in their hands now. So it's it's, it's that, that balancing act of not going, well, we know everything. It's like, well, no, you don't. No. You've not released a record before. You don't know everything. You know very little, but you know what you are and the essence of your of your sound and your act. The, the essence of our sound was those three part vocal harmonies, yeah. and those were just mixed right out of the right out of the mix. So it was a lead vocal, a bit of backing vocal in there somewhere, yeah. and then this is your <laughs> this is Neil. He's going to play drums on your record now. The, yeah. Here's Nick, who's playing hi. the bass. Yeah. Uh, you know, hi. And of course, all you hear is the drums and the bass and this lead vocal and uh, right, yeah. the session guitarist playing electric guitar over the top. It doesn't sound like you at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, that ground to a halt, really. Um, Was that what motivated you to then go? I'm, I'm, I'm going to start the Tom Robinson band this is it's going to be my own thing and again I feel that that was the point you really got social and political and really put your stamp on it to say this is going to be my sound and my music and my lyrics and that that seemed to be that turning point seeing the Sex Pistols I think had to be yeah you know for so many of my generation Joe Strummer saw the Sex Pistols left the 101ers um, yeah and certainly for me um, I hated it to be honest yeah I'd, I'd come <laughs> you know I was already 25, 26 when I saw them if you're smashing out and slaving over beautiful three part harmonies to then see Johnny Rotten screaming as as I mean that was probably pre-Sid Vicious but just, just screaming yeah. and, and people just jumping around and making a mess of barely playing their instruments was probably infuriating particularly when you've not necess- or you're not getting the attention necessarily that they're getting yeah. when you in your mind we're, we're way more talented than these well these we're, we're proper musicians you know <laughs> exactly. we've trained we've yeah <laughs> yeah uh, and we're polite to our audience I, I always uh, I love the Ian, Ian, Ian McKay quote of I'm far more excited to watch four people who have ideas greater than their ability to get them out than people who have these endless abilities and can therefore articulate themselves musically in any way. And that's the, that was always the excitement of punk and hardcore for me f- for, as a listener and then as a guitarist that turned into a bass player because I wasn't good enough on guitar and, and just things like that. That kind of, I just need to get this out, that excitement of, 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 of punk in that manner. Well, that's when I realised it didn't really matter that I couldn't sing. Yeah. You know, and... And if you listen to the early TRB records, I really couldn't. Right. It had to be Gay and Martin. The vocals are way out of yeah. tune. And it, I was like an old corn crake. Um, <laughs> but it didn't matter. No. What mattered was that you meant it. Yeah. Uh, was, that's what people were interested in, I think, at the time. And so it gave me the confidence to say, OK, I'm going to be a lead singer. Brilliant. And so I walked out of uh, Cafe Society, walked out of that retainer, mm-hmm. the security of having a record deal, um, and went around all the London pubs where we had played with Cafe uh, yeah. in the previous couple of years and went to the landlords and said, can you give me a gig for my new band? Yeah. And they went, yeah, your Cafe Society were pretty good. Um, what's the new band called? And it was only then I suddenly, oh, um, the, um, it's called uh, um, the Tom Robinson Band. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's a big mistake. I really wish I'd given it a band name, but, you know, 
I love Hind- these hindsight, things. Of, hindsight is a wonderful thing. Completely. I've discussed this before, but me and Dan Lassac, again, people are always like, so what's the verses mean? Why is the verses? Yeah. It's like, that was the name we put on our MySpace page when we didn't think anyone was ever going to hear our stuff. It was, it was literally... It was never even discussed between me and Dan. Dan built the MySpace page. was like, here we go. I put it up, Dan Lissac versus Scroobius Pip. And then so much along the lines of, so the verses rather than an and and all this kind of stuff. You, 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 you're giving us far too much credit for the amount of thought that went into this. <laughs> there was no thought that went into this. And similarly, if it's the uh, Tom Robinson's band, is like, was that so you had your brand in yourself at the front? And he's just what came to mind when they said what's the band yeah, yeah and there was no band yeah either yeah um, there was only the gigs yeah so once the gigs were set up and I had like five or six gigs set up in the coming two months I then sat down and wrote some songs that oh, could be amazing. learned in a sound check yeah so I tried to write them as simple as possible three chords bad three chords good two chords better yeah, yeah so yeah, yeah brilliant uh, and always the same <laughs> chord sequence that runs around you know two four six eight motorway up against the wall it's yeah. just the same sequence yeah so that you can just say it goes G D C okay got yeah. that yeah, yeah, yeah and then you learn it in the sound check and you play it that night so then I called up brilliant bassists and drummers and guitarists that I knew in other bands and said, are you free on this Sunday to come down to the Greyhound in Fulham and play a gig with me? And they go, yes or no, accordingly. And um, we started gigging and the, the, the TRB started as something in my head that started to have a reality from gig to gig, a different lineup, yeah. uh, from, but roughly the same songs. And I was gradually kind of working out what it was all about. I love that. The kind of the figuring it all out on the fly, essentially get it up there and running and then change it. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, it's, it's the best completely. thing. And then we gradually added permanent members. So there was a boy I'd known from Finchton yep. who was Danny Custo, who was uh, at the time uh, having an affair with Alexis Corner's daughter, right. living in Wales in a caravan. <laughs> and he came to London and uh, volunteered for guitar duties. Yep. And I had no idea that Danny had really become a world-class guitarist in right. the interim. I mean, yeah. he, he blossomed in that environment and he was a wonderful guitarist and a big, big part of TRB's yeah. success was the guitar sound and his stage presence and what he brought to the band I owe him so much Um, but because we'd met at Finchton Manor, a place for disturbed adolescents, there was always going to be a bit of a frictional kind of relationship between us, built in instability Mm -hmm. in there which eventually tore the band uh, apart in due course but these things, they, yeah. they they rise, they fall. What Preston said the the other week about you know you have your first record and then the rest is all about managing decline. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's completely. So, it's it's exactly that. But um, so so how so you, you've 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 had one band and it's not gone how you've liked. How was it then when songs like a, a two four six eight might were, were suddenly rocketing into the top into the top five? I think it was, wasn't it? And we got lucky because um, we we did a. a a test for EMI. I mean, those days, home demos were unknown. You had to go yeah, and do a demo course, at a yeah. studio that somebody else paid for. We went and did a demo of 2468 Motorway. EMI turned it down. Oh, really? Yeah. Then we went out and gigged solidly for six months. Yeah. And the EMI came back and they couldn't get in the venue. And over the heads of the crowd, they could see the audience singing along with every song, Brilliant. all the words of every song. Yeah. And they signed us. And, and the first single was 2468 Motorway. We, you know... Uh, that 
we were up and running. We yeah, were, we, and we were away. A key how, thing. I, I just want to say one key thing actually about that build and yeah. how we got that audience loyalty. Yeah. Partly it was that people liked the songs, but partly it was because in those pre-social media days. Mm-hmm. We did a newsletter. Uh, <clears throat> we always gave out free stickers so people could stick them on the London Underground yep. around the place with the Perfect. band name on them yep. or it's put classic. them on, make it into a badge. Uh, and we always gave out a free newsletter, which was like a Xeroxed typewritten yep. newsletter, which had the names of the band, funny descriptions of what we all did, Great. Uh, reports of previous gigs we'd done, little columns by different band members, bits of agitprop, this is the number for spare rib, this is the number for rock, this is the address for Rock Against Racism, yep. here's the number for Gay Switchboard, Awesome. and then there'd be a political polemic piece, and then there'd be a list of upcoming gigs, Perfect. so that people knew they could come and see you at the Golden Lion the following and week. And could tell their friends to, and bring their, tell, their friends along. And, and again, that, that, that grass roots and and real world um approach is still relevant in this time of social media my, mine and dan lasak's kind of breakthrough year in 2007 i think at the camden crawl we gave out oh, we had two shows over the camden crawl weekend and on the first one we gave out as many as we could adjust a band stickers Camden Crawl obviously has the posters everywhere for everyone that's playing, and Camden in general posters for all sorts of bands. Every poster that had any band name on had just a band stuck <laughs> just after it. For, and it became the thing that, it, you know, it worked as that kind of... It helped with their shouts spreading organically and becoming this big thing, because it was like, right, no, we've just got this thing. In small writing, it had our name, but the main thing was, no, we need that just a band just- after every band. And, yeah, it's that, that real-world... Stickers putting something out there. I think that's again, it's 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 huge. It's fantastic. It's, you, you I, get, I didn't know that. You get caught at points in your own arrogance of as long as I've heard us, they're going to remember us. Like, no, no. They might hear you and think it's great, and then see another band, or they might hear you and think it's great, and then the, the, they meet someone on the way home and get laid, and that, and everything from the from, from that happened before that is forgotten because that was the highlight of the night. There's so much to stop them remembering you that. If you can put something in their hand, then that's what makes a difference. So I can go, oh, yeah. I remember that. I, I, I saw them. That, that was great, you know. The other thing, the key thing on those newsletters was at the bottom of the, all the writing, it said, if you would like to write to us, we would like to hear from you. Brilliant, yeah. If you send us a stamped, dressed envelope to this address, we will reply. Yeah. And we kept that up for the whole life of the band. Yeah, if anybody great. ever wrote to our band, they always got a reply signed by at least one of the band. Yeah. And even when we were playing Hammersmith Apollo, that level of gigs, Amazing. I was in the hotel rooms dealing with sacks of bloody mail when I should have been writing songs. Yeah. I mean... I just so wanted to keep the faith yeah, and, and it's, it's make people like me, there, you yeah. know, keep that route. But honestly, I think those people that got those letters, if they had got another song as good as 2468 Motorway a further year down the line, they I think they'd have preferred that. They'd got a, yeah. a letter back. So, I mean, let's talk about this because two, four, I mean, we'll obviously also get to, first of all, a 2468 Motorway, again, the excitement there of, there being subtle undertones of 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 sexuality in there um it was at a time that as well it wasn't until years later that i realized i listened properly to um to walk on the wild side i was like wow this is a huge pop song that's about very taboo subjects so was that an exciting thing for you um because then obviously 
glad to be gay far less subtle um, yeah, yeah. Says very much here's what it is but that must have been a huge excitement to go right here's here, here's this subject that we can just talk about and it's okay yeah I'm glad to be gay it was difficult how are we going to release this yeah anyway you know um, in what context banned b- banned by the BBC right yeah the, at the time John Peel was the only person that played it yeah. at the time he he defined there wasn't an outright ban because they knew that we could use that for publicity. Right. But there was a woman called Doreen Davis who decreed that... Um, it's not to be. ..that the Tom Robinson band was not to be played in future. Wow. And between 2468 Motorway um, and uh, and the EP with Glad to be Gay on it, there was a song called Don't Take No for an Answer. Yeah. So that did all right. Until War Baby in 1983, there was no more ra- Radio 1 play. Wow. Because... Um, and that's a big difference as well at that point, to go from a song that's... Top top ten, top five, and all that to then not no, a thing. No place. But, uh, but, uh, but particularly as you, you said, at a point where this was the main avenue. This wasn't. It's not like there was loads of other options. It, it's very rare that if they've invested in one song or backed one song, they're not going to back the bits that come ahead because mm. that's 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 part of the nature of a station to build that audience for that band and have that that loyalty. So we're the ones that that got you into to TRB come back and you'll keep hearing mm. their new stuff first before you can hear it anywhere else the first place you'll hear about new stuff is here so to then to walk away from that it's a big statement even if it's if, even if there's not a, a technical ban out no. there you know well top of the pops carried on letting us you know come on and, yeah. and play our singles and stuff but we didn't get playlisted at radio one again after after that yeah. um so what we did anyway for that second record was to put out an ep uh, for the same price as a single, with a picture sleeve and four tracks on it. Yeah. And so there's a lead track, Don't Take No for an Answer, which was about my falling out with Ray Davis over leaving his record label. Yeah, excellent. There was uh, My Brother Martin, which was kind of the audience. Didn't party. he do something as well? In, yeah, wasn't he it? did. There was a back and forth. Again, it's 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 pre-hip-hop diss tracks. There was there <laughs> yeah, was your did. one, and then, then Ray Davis responded with one. And I, again, I love that. That excites me with the the great, everyone, all the belief of, of hip-hop inventing the, the beef. It's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. It's not as simple as that. <laughs> he was really savage, too. His song was called uh, The Prince of the Punks. Right. And uh, hit hit a few home points as well. I mean, he said, yeah. you know, he, he talks like a cockney, but it's all baloney. He's really middle class and he's just a phony. He acts tough, but it's just a front, The Prince of the Punks. And uh, if you listen to those early records, I was, to my eternal shame, affecting this awful yeah. mockney accent yeah. because I thought that was more punk and I thought, the real middle class me isn't acceptable yeah. in this environment. Yeah. You know, of playing in these pubs uh, always, a, a, I, around the punk I, scene. I, I always remember gigging early on with Kate Nash and Adele and Jack Peñate, and we're all coming up, and we all started to get g- given the Mockney accents thing. And I just had to defend so much that no, no, no that's an Essex accent. That's the, I'm, ju- I'm just from Essex. I'm not, I'm not doing a bad Cockney accent. I'm just, I'm, that's just what Essex people sound like. It's not, you know, there was that that awkwardness of that of defence of it. But yeah, so, oh, so, so yeah, after that, of course, there was again. I love the fact that that's the start of the of the hip hop beefs and diss tracks in in reality. But yeah, so on. From so that. so that that EP had the. Had those two tracks, yep. and then Glad to Be Gay on there, yeah. and another song called Right On Sister. And so, by having it as an EP track that people could either play or not play, radio-wise, right. um, it, it meant it was out there, but it didn't affect us 
at the time from getting that's why it's one kind plate. of making it available but not not ostracizing yourself no. with it and in fact capital radio played the bejesus out of it and yeah. it was number one on the capital hit line for six weeks voted for by the listeners wow and wow. we were they voted us london band of the year yeah. in 1978 so fantastic support from that yeah. london fan base at that time yeah um Amazing. So, so what was the? Uh, again, we're jumping ahead a bit. What was the eventual uh, decline of the of, of 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 TRB? How did that all fall apart? And uh... well, I think apart from the personality differences yeah. and forms, and again, a completely natural thing. It's incredibly hard to be thrown into something where you're 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 so not only. It, in each other's space constantly, but so dependent on each other as well. There's a lot of responsibility. Everything that you do is a responsibility to the lives of several other people and, and vice versa. It's a yeah. it's a weird one. The the other two musicians, uh, Dolphin Taylor, the drummer, and Mark Ambler, the keyboard player, were both kind of really important part of the sound as well. I mean, yeah. I totally, you know respect the importance of the contribution of the four-piece unit that made it popular yeah. and it was what it was. It was a combination of a magic chemistry that worked. Yeah. But they came through the Melody Maker. You're so right. just put in a small ad in the Melody Brilliant. Maker saying, you know, we've got no money but if you want to be in something really fucking amazing this year, yeah. answer this ad. Brilliant. And, you know, bless them, they did. Yeah. Um, Dolphin Taylor, out of all of us, the drummer, had the best musical judgment and the best business sense of any of us because um, when we were getting ready to do the second album, it was him that suggested using Todd Rundgren to produce it and him that said, you know, we haven't got enough good songs for this second album. And I didn't hear what he said. I heard him say, your songs are shit. Yeah, that's tough. (laughs) You know, he was actually trying to tell me a fact. Yeah. We didn't have the same quality of songs for this second album. Yeah. We need to do something about it. What I heard was him criticising me and saying, you know, you're writing shit songs, you need to pull your finger out and stop being an asshole." Yeah. And I, and I did this whole kind of, well, if you don't like it, you can leave the band. He said, OK, I will. And he left. It's always awkward th- 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 throwing out threats and, and options like that, isn't it? Because it's... it's and yeah. he was right. Now, yeah. with... Hindsight, you know, we've kissed and made up and all the rest yeah. of it. And he went off, drummed with stiff little fingers for 10 years, yeah. carried on being a pop star, and then got pissed off with the industry and being a, a drummer and formed a publishing company and is now fat and successful in L.A. So, he, boy, good, done um, good. It's the way to go, yeah. Better than all of us. Yeah. So he's done best out of any of us, I think. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pause it here because we're getting close towards, or we're over the hour mark, but there's so much more I want to talk about. So I'm going to split this into a two-parter for this week. Yeah. So this will be the end of the first half, and in in the next half, which, I mean, we're going to just continue talking in reality, but but for everyone listening, it'll be out at midday, maybe, let's say. Um, Then we'll get into, because we've not even got into radio, which is what a lot of people nowadays would know you for. And again, (laughs) the end of the band, I do want to talk more about... uh, about getting married and having ch- children, considering the huge body of the first half of this interview, yeah. the fact that you, you got married and had children is yeah. interesting. So, yeah, we'll continue that in part two, which will be out at midday. So, yeah, see you in a bit.
You've been listening to Scrooge Pits Discretion Pieces. How is that for a cliffhanger? Jeez. I told you this one was good, man. I told you we got deep. I mean, first of all, it was illegal to be gay. Just let that sink in for a bit. In England, in in the life in 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 in, in the lifetime of someone that we're just sitting to talking to here, not some weird old man from the the past, a dude who's got a great radio show who's just yeah. In his lifetime, when he was a teen, realising he was gay, it was illegal. Damn, that's messed up. Anyway, I'm going to keep this intro, sh- this outro short because we've got part two coming at midday. Um, and we continue on the kind of the breakup of how things were, of how tensions were. We talk about his transition and drift into, in, into radio and making an amazing career there. We talk about him getting married and having children after being essentially a gay icon and a campaigner for gay rights and suddenly having to realise that. so And we get onto the new record as well, which is amazing. So we, we we talk about a lot. So check that out. That's If you've subscribed, it might even be already on your phone. I, d- I don't know when you listen to this. Um, but yeah, this one came out at midnight. The new one will be at midday. I'll see you then.